more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is the 13th of October, 2019, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Chelsea Beheimer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. Here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, our guest is mentored by Dr. Uh, Sivu Kalori, who is, and he's a PhD candidate in the Molecular and Cellular Biology program. Thank you for coming on the show, Martin. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So your work is the quintessential graduate student experience where you're trying to find out how to fight cancer, and that is amazing, but it's also very complicated. So before we dive into your research specifically, tell us a little bit more about how exactly cancer works so we can help to understand your research. Sure. So um, cancer is essentially uncontrolled growth or loss of control um, of cells that are in our body. So um, typically in health, our cells are governed and tightly regulated where um, certain cells are, are told to, to survive or told to die. And so um, you can think of cancer as a cell in your body that has lost control and uh, like a car without brakes and an accelerator stuck on. And this can lead to outgrowth and then um, this um, can cause um, problems with the tissues that the cells are originated from. Um, and that can become deadly for some pa patients with cancer. So just some traditional ways of fighting this unregulated cell replication, like what are some of those traditional ways that we would, you know, think of to try and treat cancer? Yeah, sure. So we can go back to um, regulation of normal cells and regulation of um, times in our um, in human development, such as um, in the embryonic stage, um, cell death is highly regulated and we want cell death to um, destroy the cells between our fingers, otherwise we would have webbed fingers. So that's one example of a, um, where cell death is highly regulated and a good thing. Wait a second. So our cells will purposefully kill themselves? Yes. Yep. So they're in our, our cells are programmed to... Um, kill themselves in certain situations and 
Um, the loss of this leads to uncontrolled growth and cancer. Whereas in neural development, this is really important to um, um, eliminate certain populations of cells um, during um, human growth. And so it's essential for health and survival. I think this is something we all learn about in biology, but forget about, right? There's a there's a word to describe this phenomenon of regulated cell yep. death, and right? Yeah, and it's called apoptosis. It's That's called um, <laughs> regulated cell death, essentially. And I definitely forgot that from biology <laughs> class. <laughs> Bringing us back. Okay, so so we, we know what cancer is, um, and then we know that there's kind of an on and off switch that can dictate whether or not a cell will will die or or live. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly does that on and off switch get turned on or off? Yes, sure. So um, there's certain types of proteins um, within the cells in all our bodies um, that can regulate cell death. One of the key um, family of proteins that regulate the cell death is called the BCL2 family of proteins. And it's made up of um, pro-survival or survival proteins and pro-death proteins proteins and you can think of it like a scale and both sets of these proteins survival or death are on either ends of the scale and the amount of survival and the amount of death proteins can confer the um, the fate of the cell so if you've got for example more survival proteins in the cell this will lead to the cells surviving even when they've been told not to undergo cell death and that's an an instance when um, cancer can develop because um, cells can, as part of our daily lives, get mutated. And if um, they, they have other signals that raise these survival um, proteins, that means they um, will be able to evade the traditional forms of cell death and, um, and survive and go on to proliferate. Um, and so... So all cells have yeah. both of these families of proteins yeah. of, you know, pro-death, pro, pro-survival at constantly, but it's the kind of the, the quantity or the concentration mm-hmm. within the cell that will dictate whether or not that cell will continue surviving. Exactly. Yeah. So um, they confer the, the fate of the, the cell, essentially. And so this is highly regulated in health. And the loss of this regulation um, is one of um, the causes of cancer. Okay, so then if we can try to identify this protein and try to manipulate it so that way if we need a cell to die, say because it's a bunch of cancer cells, can we do that? Yeah, yeah, we, we actually can. And, and this is one of the, the areas that my lab and, and I work on. And so I have to give some more details of this family of proteins, BCL2. So... I mentioned there's the survival and the death proteins within this family, and they oppose each other. Um, however, interestingly, they have um, regions in the proteins of the survival and the death proteins that are the same. So there's this, they're called homology domains. The actual term is a BCL2 homology domains, but essentially these homology the, the domains are the same within the two sets of proteins. And one critical domain that's expressed both in the survival and the death proteins is the, the domain called the death domain. This death domain um, is hidden away. Like, like um, you could imagine pro-survival BCL2, the protein that keeps cells alive. Um, you could imagine this death domain is um, within, um, within the protein. So imagine the protein um, is a ball a sphere 
um, and it has this deaf domain um, sequestered inside it. So it's like hidden. It's not exposed mm. to... Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. And um, under certain um, molecular um, manipulations, um, we're actually able to expose this deaf domain. And then once this deaf domain is exposed, it acts like a killer protein. And so we're able to therapeutically manipulate this survival protein to become a killer protein and induce cell death in cancer cells, for instance. And uh, Wow. So how does it become, you're saying it's, it's protected inside of the structure. How does it become exposed? How, do you, how does it do yeah, that? Yeah, sure. So we've um, done some work and my PI and advisor, Siva Kalori, first identified um, a peptide or, a, or another protein expressed in um, normal cells that under normal physiological conditions can go and bind to this survival protein. So it's a two proteins acting together and this will lead to the, the, the BCL2 survival protein changing shape. And it does this by just opening up its conformation. Um, since then, we've been able to um, screen a load of um, compounds and um, tens of thousands of compounds from a from a what's called a small molecule library, and we've able to find compounds that mimic this original discovery and potentially um, identify compounds that could be used to expose this killer um, form of the the protein um, to kill cancer cells. So this is a good time to for me to remind myself actually <laughs> that mm -hmm. that especially with proteins, structure determines function, and if you can change the structure, like having that death domain once be hidden, now be kind of open and available for something else to attach onto it. And then it'll it'll start to begin that cascade of, of kind of death processes. Exactly. And um, how the BCL2 family of proteins work is that they are the guardians, essentially, of the mitochondria. So the mitochondria is like the, um, the powerhouse of the cell and um, produces stuff like ATP. And um, the intact membrane, you can imagine it's a, a 3D balloon um, filled up with air, for instance. And um, the BCL2, the pro-survival BCL2, protect it as a, um, prevent it from being popped, essentially. Mm -hmm. And um, these pro-survival proteins protect it. And in case, in normal physiological conditions, um, killer proteins once activated by a certain stimuli, can go and pop holes in that balloon or the mitochondria. That releases um, factors that lead to the cell destruction or apoptosis. And usually I think of cell death as like, oh no, that's really bad because you mm -hmm. know, we don't want our cells to die. But for cancer cells, this is exactly what we want to happen. Exactly. Yeah, mm. so that that's one of the key um, areas and um, research all over the world have developing new ways to kill cancer cells and trying to rein in control and put brakes back on on that car. So. And this sounds like, I mean, you said you're looking through thousands of different compounds to even identify something that will bind to these proteins mm -hmm. and kind of um, engage that normal process of, of starting to kill the cells. But why, so why do we need to find new therapies for for cancer cells yeah sure so um in the clinic we we've made um big 
um, improvements over the past 10, 20 years on the, the, the treatments and the prognosis for, for cancer patients because we have some fantastic treatments in the clinic right now. And um, unfortunately, for a, a small popula- um, proportion of patients, um, certain um, treatments will no longer work or they respond for a short amount of time and then the cancer may come back in, in months or years. And um, at this point, there are limited options for these patients. And so there's a real need to come up with new ways that um, can kill these cells that um, are causing this disease. And so um, this process where um, cancer becomes unresponsive is called acquired resistance. Mm. And so we need new therapies for therapy-resistant cancer, essentially. Right. So your lab is focused on those therapy-resistant cancer cells. Yeah, that's been the bulk of my um, PhD thesis work, where I've worked with, we, we grow cells, cancer cells on a dish, and I've been able to develop a number of cells from human patients that have become resistant to try and model what happens in the clinic. And then we've been able to screen um, our compounds to find um, compounds that kill these resistant cells. And and we, we have shown that they kill them by binding to this protein, BCL2. And we've done that through, you can imagine BCL2 as a target, and we can either have the target present mm. or we lose the, the target and, and, and what is called a knockout. Mm. And we found that these um, compounds we have only kill the cells where the target is present, um, inferring that it goes through and BCL2, the survival protein. So you've been able to get to this point now where you have a proof of concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe a little bit of the earlier part of your work where you're screening cells where, at least in my mind, it reminds me of like rock climbing where you fail a lot. <laughs> and at least I certainly do. Like you fail a lot. So can you take yourself back to that mental space of, you know, screening all kinds of compounds over and over again and essentially coming up empty until one maybe does work and you have to try it again to make sure it wasn't an accident. Yeah. So um, the the laboratory screening project has, has been a, a big group project. There's many um, lab members that have been involved in that. And um, where we've we've screened a library of um, 50,000 oh, compounds. 50,000 uh, <laughs> compounds. It sounds a lot, but um, in... Um, big pharmaceutical companies, they work with hundreds of thousands of, mm. of compounds. But we, we've developed um, um, techniques and, and um, methodology to, to make that fairly um, streamlined. So we can do 96 per plate. You can imagine a plate like a, a, a chocolate bar or a candy bar. And you can do 96 um, different compounds in that plate with the cancer cells in that plate and then identify um, through various imaging techniques and um, various assays um, compounds that um, actually work in the manner that you're expecting and kill those cells. And it has to be through that target, that survival protein. And so from there, we get a number of um, compounds. I think we've had about 50 compounds that initially worked and then we've refined them down and to, to get about five lead compounds is where we're at today. Um, and these are fairly different shapes, but all work in the, you can imagine these compounds are different shapes and they bind to the same protein, but in slightly different, um, you imagine the, 
the tightness of the binding is slightly different and we want to get um, a really tight binding between this small molecule mm-hmm. or compound and the, the protein. And so that's where we're, we're currently at. I, I imagine, you know, having one door at OSU that you need to open and someone just drops you off a like, you know, a truckload of keys and says, here are all the keys to OSU. <laughs> yeah. Find the key that works for you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And it, obviously it has to be valid. So we we do the, the screening in one type of cancer, but this has to be validated across a number of different cancer cells, cancer cell types to make sure that... Um, we, we have a useful compound and and so um yeah that's where we are and we, we've been lucky enough that these five um compounds have uh, we've filed for patent protection um for these and um at this stage we we've been fairly lucky to work with industry mm. uh, um, based on the, the fact that we've been able to file for a patent and so so now I said we have these lead five compounds. Well, working with industry has, abled a, has enabled us to be able to take one of those lead compounds and then make slight additions to that shape to try and improve um, the compound's binding, for one, and also improve its solubility. Because you imagine long-term we want to put this into patients and a compound that's not dissolvable in liquid um, <laughs> it is not going to work because the, these are systemic treatments so something you said just there Mm -hmm. you said long term we want to Mm -hmm. put this into patients so i don't know in my mind you're talking about all this work that you're doing and you you isolate a compound that works and it works and and i think for a lot of us we're like okay that's it there's the cure but it sounds like you're saying this is really just the beginning of a a long-term process (laughs) yeah yeah this is definitely um just the beginning to put into context i think our screening project started about eight years ago um, to where we are now. We, um, we filed for um, patent applications in 2016 and, and, and th- this year we've been working with industry. So we're at the point where we've got a proof of concept. We've shown that these compounds work in animal models. Um, but the next steps are, um, it, it, it's gonna be a, a fair amount of time to get into um, patients. The next steps, is essentially what's what is called an investigational new drug application. That's what we're working towards now, and for that, that's filed with the FDA, so they they um, regulate everything to make sure it's safe and and it, it does no harm, essentially. And so the next few years is going to be trying to um, increase funding to enable safety testing and more um, animal models because that's one of the the things that's required. Um, to get it to patients is is testing to make sure there's no um, potential um, side effects and we're not going to do the patients any harm. So that work should take um, around two years for IND from from this this point, and then from there um, it can take anywhere from ten to to fifteen years to get um, fully approved, and that would be where it's used as a a treatment for. For patients, however, the clinical trials could happen in the next five years, um, but then the, the trials process itself is a very long and expensive process. <laughs> yeah, 
Wow. And, and that's one of the reasons why you need to get patent protection. And I want to put a pin in that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to come back to it at the end. But but that patent protection really allows this work to continue moving forward. Um, but before we go there, I want to remind listeners that if you're just tuning in, this is 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. And this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're speaking to Martin Pierce, who is researching cancer cells, but not just any cancer. There's You're researching specifically breast cancer, breast cancer that is non-responsive to therapeutic treatment. And you also have a personal tie to this. You're not just looking at these, you know, auger plates in the lab and seeing whether or not there's little blue colonies or not. You, because you love blue. Yeah. <laughs> Being in the lab. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what kind of started you on this path towards biomedical research? Yeah, sure. So I think it was an accumulation of things. Um, like many people, um, my family's been affected by cancer diagnosis. Um, so one um, both my grandmothers were diagnosed with breast cancers um, so, some years ago now. And um, one of my grandmothers, she um, um, responded really well to the treatment and she's been clear for many years. And so um, that's, that's been great. And um, however, my other grandmother, um, she responded well to the initial treatment. And however, the, the cancer came back many years later. Um, and unfortunately, there was no real um, treatment um, for her. And um, so that was part of my reasoning for um, developing this um, research project, because I, was, I think there's a, there's a real need to come up with new therapies for patients that, that can't be treated. And so that was part of my um, inspiration to go down this route. And yeah. But you've always been interested in, in mm -hmm. science, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a, um, back in, so I did my um, high school back in the UK, where I'm from. And um, we typically take from years 16 to 18, three, um, three or four subjects in, in greater detail. And so I picked business, which I was always pretty good at. I really enjoyed enjoyed it. Geography and then biology and and biology, I always, I always struggled um, a fair <laughs> amount with that. And I, I never thought for one minute that I'd be going to do a PhD in molecular biology. Um, but one of my teachers in these A-level years, she was a, a doctor um, that retired from being a doctor and, and taken on full-time teaching. And so she was really interested and, and um, knowledgeable about the biomedical field. And, uh, and she... Um, interest me she made made her lessons very uh interactive and and that that sort of thing pushed me to go on to um apply to university where i did biomedical sciences you you didn't you had initially decided to do business yeah yeah <laughs> so um it was about a month before so applications i think were due in october or november time and i'd or i'd been around visiting universities looking for business degrees and then <laughs> for some reason like the accumulation of the things I, I just spoke about and um yeah i i just went for the the bio, biomedical science degree and and here i am <laughs> well you know we're skipping a, a little bit right because yeah. uh during your university experience you also came to the states for the first time oh yeah so that that was part of the reason um why I chose the university I did. So I went to University West of England, Bristol, and they really push um, taking a year 
um, what's called a placement year back home where you um, encouraged to go out and work for a year in a in a relevant field and so they were they were um, they had a link with East Carolina University in North Carolina and I was lucky enough to get um, a place doing a, a research project for a full year over there which I really enjoyed I had a incredibly supportive mentor and I worked on adult T-cell leukemia and so that um, she really pushed me and and had faith in me and I had a whole research project on my own and by the end of that time um, I was she um, persuaded me to consider grad school (laughs) (laughs) so prior to that experience you had you done research in 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 that form before no I, I hadn't done any previous research research up until um that placement year and and so i wasn't even considering doing a phd i'm not sure what i, I would have been doing but without that experience <laughs> yeah. there's there's um yeah it's and then, very well timed yeah you know doing a placement year when you're at this stage of kind of wondering what you're going to do with your life. I think a lot of undergraduates could, if they've had that opportunity to do research, it's life changing. Definitely. That's very cool. Yeah. So you were able to find out what research is. You were able to find out that, oh, or maybe not find out, but be convinced that maybe grad school's for me. Yeah. Uh, And then in that year, you also met someone special. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, to meet my now wife. Um, she's from North Carolina, and we just met on a, a, a chance meeting at a party, and, and then we got married this May. So she's been... Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So you had to go back to the UK to finish your degree. She stayed here yeah. in the States, um, and then you were able to find your way back to the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. So um, she managed to get a job in California, and I was looking at grad schools and we thought Oregon sounded nice and and we liked the, the hiking and camping and that sort of thing so um managed to come all, all the way out here so. and in addition to to the fact that you know you had a special someone you wanted to come back for uh, uh OSU also had your PI who mm-hmm. really focused on translational research yeah so that was when I was looking at programs I was um I applied for the MCB program but I was one of the beauties of the MCB program um, or molecular cellular biology was the fact that you could do rotations. And so I was interested in um, three different labs that are all cancer biology focused. And so um, at the start, before rotations, um, I wasn't sure. And I, I really enjoyed all of my rotations. Um, but when I rotated in the spring term with my advisor, it was really clear that he was not only passionate about the science and the publications and um, the, the the research, but his main goal and, and I think mine um, matched up very well that we, we really want to see translational science where we're not only publishing, but trying to get something out there to help people or have some kind of impact in the real world. And so that's what um, drew me to, to work. I want to work in his lab. So. So this is where I want to take the pin out yeah. and bring it back, where, where you applied for patent protection, because this is a necessary step in order to take a you know, newly found compound that you know, has been shown to have you know, some really positive effects in terms of fighting cancer that is not responsive to other therapies. But you still need to get it out into the world and test it on you know, mice models, then you know, clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. But this patent protection step is a very necessary one, not just in your not just in your specific compound, mm-hmm. but 
basically any compound that oh, yeah. you know would we would like to to use for exactly for health. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons for patent protection is so necessary is that the the cost of drug development I think is over a billion dollars for one single drug to make it to the 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 clinic and actually be approved. And so unfortunately. It co- the, because of the amount that it costs, there would be the need for patent protection is that one business alone could invest all that money without patent pre- protection. Another business could come in after they've done a billion dollars worth of work and then come in and make the same thing the next day once it's approved. So patent protection is there to um, it allow people to invest the amounts of money that is required um, so it can actually get to the clinic. Otherwise, without that there would never be any new drugs and for cancer or any kinds of um, drugs that can potentially help people. So, And uh, you've gone through this process through your PhD work? Yeah, yeah. So we were lucky enough, um, my advisor and another student and I were um, filed for um, protection um, through OSU. And so that's um, that was a really interesting experience. Um, that there's something on the patent documents called claims mm. um, and these are the key um, important aspects of the patents and so developing claims based on your uh, invention mm-hmm. and then um, some communication with um, the patent officer OSU and and my advisor Siva Clory he runs a, a molecular therapeutics class um, where the patent agent from OSU comes in and gives a talk about not only patent protection for drug development, but patent careers. And mm-hmm. and so that really got me interested in that type of thing because I I've really I really enjoy science and I, I really enjoy being exposed to a broad array of new inventions, new technology, people at that really exciting stage where you're you're starting to look into translational um aspects of your science. And so that's where um I, I'm planning to go and pursue a career in uh, patent law. So you are going back to your your business interest in the (laughs) end, bringing it full circle. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how things work out. (laughs) So I think this is really interesting because as a patent attorney, you are kind of the linchpin between the the most up-to-date research that isn't in science, that is barely in scientific journals yet, Mm -hmm. but then ensuring that there is protection for those researchers and compounds moving forward so that it can be further developed but the level of scientific knowledge that must be required is crazy yeah but yeah. you having a phd in molecular cellular biology soon to be mm-hmm. sounds like the perfect kind of um shepherd for this kind of work yeah exactly so um being a, a patent attorney so i've been looking into this the past few couple years now and um yeah one of the requirements is to have a a high level understanding of a broad area essentially so any molecular biology inventions a patent attorney should be able to understand and and so that's one of the where my phd has allowed me to to gain that understanding so um i think that's a really a really great way to speak to a lot of graduate students who are going through their work and maybe reaching the end and realizing they maybe don't want to spend their whole lives doing the same thing. And yet for you, you've spent a lot of time a part of this, you know, clinical research project or lab research part of it. And you don't necessarily want to see the full thing through to its 
decades until completion, but you want to be a part of, as you said, you know, translational, making it into reality, and you've found this opportunity through that process. So I think that's just great. Yeah. <laughs> How exciting. Yeah, definitely. That aspect of, of the work um, really excites me, the potential to be in that critical step where you're the, the scientists are all going to be very excited about their work and also the potential people that are taking it further excited about having an impact in the in the world so yeah. you might not have known about that no otherwise definitely not <laughs> so this is a critical stage in the show where mm -hmm. we yeah. now ask you for some advice knowing okay. what you know now at the tail end of your research project uh what advice do you have and to whom is it for yeah so my advice would be to undergrads looking at grad school and also um, graduate students in their first couple of years. Um, I think a lot of people may think going into a PhD program is fairly, uh, there's a, well, when I came into it, I was looking at a academic um, route, the, the sort of becoming a, a PI or professor leading a, a lab was, was one of the, the things. And I think it's a fairly typical thing. However, the, the numbers that actually go on to do that are incredibly low, <laughs> I think around 1%. And so, however, I think being involved in a PhD program and um, it gives you not only the research skills, but um, the whole broader set of skills that you acquired during a PhD that's applicable to many different careers. And um, also having a PI or an, um, a mentor such as Siva Kalori, who's been really invested not only in the research side of my development, but also the professional development. So I think that's really critical to find um, a mentor that not only cares about the research, but is aware of other areas that are out there. And so he's been really um, supportive in that sense. And so finding someone that supports professional development and uh, and looking at not only academic options, but being exposed to other types of things because I, for one he was able to help me and we, we both went through um, an OSU business um, incubator project where I did a load of um, business develop learned a load of business development skills which was completely new to me and yeah. uh, and that, that was a really great experience so I, I'd really when people are looking at um, schools and also potential mentors have that in mind and have that kind of conversation with with the people they're looking at. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. <laughs> so our other tradition, mm -hmm. which is a little bit uh, different, but kind of a fun way to wrap up the show, is we ask if you have a song that you would like us to play and why you have chosen that song. So what do you have for us? Sure. So I've got um, Oasis, Wonderwall. Um, it's a it's a go-to karaoke song of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and also it was um, the last song played out at um, my, my wedding back in May. And so it was a, it was a really fun time with everyone singing that um, at the end of the night on the dance floor. Very so, nice. Really good times. Well, with that, Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we hope to have more of you and your lab members come back. Thank you. And thanks for all the work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks. And here it is with uh, Wonderwall by Oasis. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline, and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.